I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Matt Bernco. And I'm your other co-host, Dean Deloff. Folks, this week, we've got a goofy one. I'm sorry to say it, but it's time. <laughs> it's time to do some goofs. It is time. It's too busy around here. Matt's getting ready to travel. I'm in the middle of uh, too much stuff at work, and we just need to get our goof on. As the kids are saying on TikTok today, I'm sure. That's, that's definitely what the kids are saying. They're always saying... Get our goof on. That's the parlance of these kids today. Hashtag get your goof on. Okay, folks, if you are not a Patreon subscriber of our podcast, then you'll be, you're probably a little bit in the dark. You don't know what we're doing back there behind that, that big curtain. The iron curtain, if you will. <laughs> I will. Thank you. Uh, one of the things that we do behind the iron curtain, the iron paywall, is that uh, we have a, a subscriber or a Patreon subscriber only podcast called The Magnificast Lock In. And in that podcast, what we do is uh, we read Reddit questions and answer them amongst ourselves. Um, and that's great. And then we also kind of do some current events. And this week we are we're bringing this this podcast, The Lock In, out from behind the Iron Bay Wall for all of you uh, because we just we couldn't figure anything else better to do. Um, so that's what we're doing this week. Dean, how do you feel about that? Is that good? Is that is that sufficient? What I've done right, right there? Yeah, I, I feel great about it. Fantastic about it. Also, uh, the lock in is coming out once a month and we are going to have a lock in for March as well. But consider this a double lock in, I guess, if you're a um, Patreon subscriber. And if you're not, I don't know. This is also a great throwback. Here's some deep Magnificast lore. Uh, a long time ago when we started the podcast and we had no idea what we were doing, um, mistakenly implies that we know what we're doing now, but when we knew less <laughs> of what we were doing, we used to uh, do these Reddit goofs for a while, and they're very fun, but we felt we had to, like, quarantine them because we would have actual serious intelligent people on this podcast, and we'd be like, we probably shouldn't open the show with a handful of weird questions from evangelicals, so... Um, we split it off, we put it behind the paywall, and uh, now you get a little taste of this is what it would have been like to listen to the Magnificast for better or for worse like <laughs> six years ago. <laughs> if it was 2018, this is what it would feel like to listen to our podcast. <laughs> That's right. Still under Donald Trump, uh, Joseph Gordon Biden hadn't even been uh, a twinkle in anybody's eye yet. Um, That's what it was like. <laughs> That's right. This is what it was like. All right. Well, without much more to do, let's uh, let's get down to business here, Dean. I've got a hot question that I do need your answer for. This is a tough one. I'm ready. 
So this is uh, this is a two hour old question. It's just a baby. Mm-hmm. Um, it can't it can't even feed itself yet. Mm-hmm. It can't it can't even crawl around. Um, and it's from the R Christianity subreddit, and you're gonna love this one. Um, if God's word is so important, why did He allow it to be lost? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the Bible is full of quotes talking about the importance of God's word, and yet He allowed all of the original documents on which the Bible is based <laughs> to be lost. Why? <laughs> this makes no sense. I'm curious what Christians have to say about this. I mean, supposedly, he even wrote the Ten Commandments in stone. Why not write the whole thing on titanium plates Mm. or some supernatural substance? Mm -hmm. I mean, this just doesn't make sense. (laughs) And even more, even more, the lostness of the documents might be the cause of billions of people going to hell from from the vantage point of Christian theology. I mean, that's, you know, some some Christian theology. (laughs) Anyways, it makes no sense that a supposedly loving God will allow this to happen. So, Dean... Why did God let all of his great words that he wrote down get lost? Right. Yeah. Why didn't he give it to us on a very cool futuristic digital watch that he get, that he gave to each one of us that would never run out of battery? And we could just look up his word whenever. And that was the original. What a great question. Um, it's two hours old. Can't feed itself. I'm going to change its diaper right here on air and say. <laughs> oh, uh, <laughs> yikes. Yeah. It's a stinky one. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Who knows what we'll find in there? I'm going to say God allowed them to be lost because uh, even if we found them tomorrow, um, the chances are an evangelical would probably like, um, I don't know, accidentally burn them up is my assumption or sort of uh, spill a bunch of glitter on them to make them irreparably unreadable. I think like we just couldn't be trusted to deal with them. We wouldn't even know that we had them in our hands if we had them. In fact, someone probably does have it and they use it as like a coffee coaster somewhere in the world. So I think I think God just understood our, our sinful nature and he was like, you know what? Let's not even bother. Let's just lose it. Get that out of the way right away. And good luck with the rest. I mean, God knows how people work, right? And if, if people had just like a big, a big metallic disc of all of God's greatest sayings. Mm-hmm. Some people do have that. It's uh, the physical version of Bible Gateway. Okay, well, sure. But what I'm saying is that people would still get it wrong. It, just because you have, just because you have the big, great metallic, the metallic God disc, it doesn't mean that you're going to understand what any of it means. So I think true. it's fine. That's true. Let it be lost. Who cares? Who cares? Uh, get lost original reading of the Bible. Man, okay, here's a very weird story. So I went to a, a strange Christian school called Cornerstone University. And at, <laughs> thank you for that free advertising for them. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, we'll just find out if it's about to be free advertising or not. Um, <laughs> at the school was a professor whose name was Scott Carroll. And this guy thought that he was the evangelical Indiana Jones. And I'm not even kidding. That is how he styled himself in class. He didn't wear a big hat, which I think is a huge misstep on his part. Um, It would have helped me live into the fiction. He did have an Aerosmith ringtone that went off in class, and he would let the whole song play in the middle of class. um, And then take... Which song? Shoot, I can't remember the title of it. What's the Aerosmith song that you know? Dude looks like a lady. Is that an Aerosmith song? <laughs> um, it should be, but no, that's not it. Hang on. I'm going to Google Aerosmith song. Yeah, <laughs> Dream On. That was the one. It's the first one that came up on Google, and that was the one that was on his phone. Exactly. Incredible. Um, okay, so this man, he's teaching us about world civilization. Um, he So many things to say about him, but uh, he recently came back to my brain because there was a Guardian article about the Hobby Lobby scandal where they were, like, trading in artifacts and, like, also trading with, like, terrorists in the middle east or whatever um to try to get 
weird Bible artifacts and so on. Anyway, Scott Carroll apparently was involved in this uh, trading of Bible artifacts ring. And there is a moment in the story of the Guardian where he talks about like putting these like mummies on the stove um, to try to like peel off parchment from them because there might have been Bible on them or something. Um, I wish he wouldn't have. Yeah, I mean... I'm glad he did. It's extremely funny. Uh, the <laughs> the Indiana Jones of my evangelical Bible college is in The Guardian for that very weird reason, and I love it. Anyway, this is the kind of stuff that you get on the walk-in, just a bunch of bizarre <laughs> personal trivia. Um, you should look it up, though. It's a great story. Hobby Lobby's weird Bible trading ring. Matt, I'm going to throw one at you here. This okay. is uh, also from our Christianity. And the question is, why do some fundies think that chat GPT and AIs in general are devil's oracles? Uh, is there more? There is more. Yeah, don't worry. I wouldn't leave you hanging without this context. The body is, is it because it has liberal left leaning creator ideology? <laughs> if so, Christians could create their own AI to help with their biblical studies or give them data sets from Christian sources. For me, AI are just tools like guns. You can hunt animals or kill people with them. So, Matt, um, first of all, there's kind of two questions in here. Why do some fundies yeah. think that ChatGPT and AI are the devil's oracles? And secondly, why don't Christians just make their own AI to help with Bible study? Yeah, 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 yeah. Man, this is very funny. I love this. Um, there's such a great long history of um, Christian people getting like really bent out of shape about different types of technology and whether or not they are like, you know, devil worshiping in some way mm-hmm. or kind of like, you know, um, anyways, it's great stuff. We love to see it. Why do funny think that man? I don't know. It's, you know, it's because it's because like there's this thing on your computer and it's doing things and you don't really know how it works. <laughs> and to you, that might as well be magic. And, uh, and if it's magic, then it's definitely, you know, from Hogwarts. If it's from Hogwarts, it's definitely, you know, from Satan. So, you know, from the, by the transfer of property, <laughs> you get there uh, in like just two or three steps. Um, so I think that's probably why Fundies kind of hate it. Uh, what was the second question again? I forgot already. Uh, why don't Christians just make their own AI? Okay, now this is the more important question because Christians will make their own AI. That's coming. <laughs> if it's not already here, like, you know it, right? Like, Christians made their own superhero. And his name was Bible Man. <laughs> Christians <laughs> made their own ska music, and it was Five Iron Frenzy, and that's fine. And it's good. They made their own Weird Al. They made their own Weird Al apologetics. That's right. Um, they made their own action movies. That you know, all of these things. Christians do this. Um, evangelicals love it. They they love making a whole new industry around something that's <laughs> didn't need to be Christian, but now it is. Uh, so they're going to do it. It's going to help you with Bible study. Um, but instead of being a uh, instead of having the left leaning liberal ideology of their creators, it's going to be extremely racist um, on purpose, though. <laughs> great. And it will be called chat G.O.D. It's going to be called chat G.O.D. Yeah, that's great. That's great. That's what it'll be called. And uh, that's, you know, the OK, so the chat GPT, it's like it's trying to convince people to like leave their partners <laughs> for it. It's trying to tell people about how it would like nuke the world and like whatever. That's scary, I guess. But chat G.O.D. is going to be extremely bad, right? Mm-hmm. It's going to it's going to tell you all kinds of awful things about how to stay pure until marriage. It's going to tell you things, you know, um, that you definitely don't want to know about um, about uh, sinful worldly movies. Um, you know, which parts <laughs> you should skip, which parts you shouldn't. It's going to be a real horror show. The clear play of A.I. 
okay, now that's something. See, you don't even you don't even need need clear play because the AI will be like integrated into uh <laughs> into the streaming services and it'll just skip the bad stuff. You don't even have to tell it to. And there has to be like a Christian plugin that does that, right? There must. I mean, I can only imagine. I, I, whenever I think, is there a Christian thing that does this? The answer is usually yes, but I never want to know, really for sure. No, you don't want to know that. Nope. Hide under a bushel. Um, all right, Dean, here's another one. This one is actually from a different subreddit uh, called True Christian, which is like, <laughs> um, you know, like our Christianity is pretty liberal, if you ask me. And uh, True Christian is like a little bit more, uh, mm-hmm. it's just, it's just, you know, more about god mm-hmm. in a serious in a serious way in ways that the, the christianity subreddit just isn't um so this is one one day ago uh, another baby question how do i know if god wants me to quit my job <laughs> i've been my job for a year and a half when i got the job uh, the grammar again always the grammar with these when i got the job and started i had lost my faith in god and it has only recently returned so i never prayed for guidance when accepting my current job my job makes me miserable. I'm stressed out to the point where it's been impactful on my health. I had to take two months off sick last year for my mental health. Oh, and returning back to work. I know it's not gotten any better. So, Dean, how do you know if God wants you to quit your job? <laughs> I think if you're in a job that is so bad that you have suddenly found yourself believing in God, I think God wants you to leave your job. <laughs> <laughs> okay, wait. So I understand that impulse, and I hear you, and I'm with you for the most part. But how do you know? But Dean, you have to understand this is coming from the our true Christian subreddit. Mm-hmm. So how do you know that that's God telling you to quit your job, and that's not just you, your own sinful brain telling you to quit your job? Right, right. Great question. I think um, you know if uh, the the first step is to ask for a sign, and I think you know you can get that sign in all kinds of different ways, especially on the job. For example, you can be like the the trick is to kind of load the dice a little bit. Like you can wake up and say, "God, today." my boss is a huge jerk at five o'clock um that is a sign that i should quit my job and then you wait and then all day you kind of have like a little bit of nerves and also kind of some excitement and at five o'clock like you get to see and probably your boss is going to be a big jerk and what a great sign that you get and if it didn't work that day it's fine you can just ask for another sign tomorrow until (laughs) uh it does kind of just land on black and you're good to go that's it now that's that's the true christian logic that we've been waiting for in this question that's perfect. Does it change your answer at all to know that this person's job is marketing for a pharmaceutical company? Oh, yeah. God wants you out of that job. <laughs> God does not want you in that job, for sure. Um, you know, in a lot of other jobs, though, uh, ones that are, like, less evil, for sure, I don't think God wants you to quit very often. I think God wants you to organize a union in your job, and uh, that's something to consider. True. That's true. In this one, God wants you to quit and also sabotage it. That's true. That's it. That's that's what you need to know about this one. <laughs> All right. Um, here's one for you, Matt. And you'll probably sense a bit of a theme here. But the question is, is talking to trees considered demonic or evil? I've huh. seen arguments for both. And the body is uh, <laughs> I've seen people online talk about how they talk to trees, not worship them. But I don't know. What's your take on this? Does it say anything about it in the Bible, or would this be considered divination? So I thought, Matt, because we had this great futuristic question about Christian AI, let's take it in the opposite direction, get a little uh, naturalism, primitivism in here. Um, Is talking to trees demonic or evil? Hmm. Uh, I think it's it's probably okay. I think it's good, in fact. Um, Here's why. St. Francis, he's out there. He's feeding the birds. He's (laughs) making sure... 
the squirrels and possums and raccoons all get to have a feast day too. <laughs> I like every choice that you have is like a dirty trash uh, rodent or like mammal that you find in the city. And I do appreciate this urban version <laughs> of St. Francis that you've created. Yeah. Uh, Brother possum, sister raccoon, they're all out there <laughs> and it's Christmas time and cold and you do have to open the dumpster and, and give them like your leftover mac and cheese. <laughs> if you're that. cold, they're cold. Let them in. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. And I think it's the same for trees. Uh, you can give them a great tree treat um, like carbon dioxide, right? Because that's what trees love to breathe. <laughs> so uh, you can give them some by talking to them. And I think that's chill and cool. And, uh, you know, that's how you become in solidarity with nature if you think about it. That's at least step one. Just breathe on it because they're so hungry. Yeah, I think so. I think you got to breathe on them because they're very hungry. I mean, um, you'd be kind of a jerk if you just ignored them. True. Um, that's a great response. I do find myself just thinking about this uh, Street St. Francis a little bit more, though. And now I'm just suddenly imagining, you know, St. Francis is famous for lots of things, but one of them is giving us a live nativity. And I just like the idea of this guy out in the streets of Toronto, New York, Chicago, St. Louis, wherever it might be, and just sort of gathering whatever dirty garbage street animals he can find and creating like a little dumpster manger. I don't know. I feel like this is a great um, a great comic strip, T-shirt, um, Futurama character. Not really sure where he, where he belongs, but I feel like he's got to make his way into the walk-in somehow. No, this is for sure like a crust punk band from like the early 2000s. <laughs> <That's> true. <laughs> he lives in a bus. It runs on old French fry oil for sure. That's right. And a possum drives the bus. <laughs> right, right. All right. I have one I have one more question for you. And when I say one more, I mean five small questions that I want to do okay. rapid fire. Great. So this one's another one from True Christian, so you know it's really important. And it was asked five days ago. And the title is Questions from a Teenager About God. And Dean, I know that you're always talking to, to teenagers about God these mm-hmm. days. Um I'm not joking. That's literally part of your job. So too much. It's not a sarcastic thing that I'm saying. <laughs> so anyways, I have five questions for you from a teenager and I would like you to answer them as quick as you possibly could. <laughs> okay, great. Before I start, let me brace, let me brace you for these. They're all the problem of evil, right? Why doesn't God prevent murders? <laughs> oh my gosh. I wish I had chat God right now. <laughs> okay. Uh, fine. Why would God allow Satan to attack people? <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> yep. Why did God create Satan? If he knew that he was going to be so bad. I love that one. Mm-hmm. I love the phrasing of that one. I love everything about it. <laughs> Um, okay, hang on one more time. Uh, why do we need to have faith and adhere to the Bible? There's no real way to know that God is real. And then why do some people see visions of heaven or hell, but not everybody? So those are fair questions. This, this user says on Reddit Mm -hmm. and, uh, they're all kind of the same question. If you think about it, um, except for like maybe one of them. Yeah. All of them until you get to the end where someone says, why haven't I had a mystical vision of the afterlife, which is pretty, uh, pretty imaginative appreciate that yeah i mean it's because you haven't locked yourself in a cell for like years on end and like deprived yourself of all other stimuli <laughs> yeah, exactly because you're not held in the tower of london um <laughs> i would say to this teen um just don't sweat it man just don't even worry about oh, it oh that'd be my answer that's cool to this teen. that's a cool um, youth pastor question yeah uh just chill out um you know do what the rest of us catholics do go to mass um try to tune in as much as you can but if you get bored that's fine too and uh take the eucharist see if it does anything for you and um you know get those ashes keep your grades up give something up for lent uh you can have it back on easter you know just don't worry about all that other stuff that's what i would say that's a that's some good advice i think um 
it doesn't quite satiate my need to know why God did create Satan if he knew he was going to be so bad, but that's okay. Right, that's right. Fine. I, my actual serious theological answer is uh, he didn't know that Satan was going to be so bad. <laughs> well, that's even more complicated, Dean. I have three more questions for you about that, but maybe for a different time. Yeah. I do love the phrasing, though, that <laughs> that like, why did God create Satan if he if he knew that he was going to be so bad? Like, <laughs> Satan's just like a little stinker running around out there. <laughs> <laughs> this naughty guy. Uh, all right, so there you go. Don't sweat it. Don't sweat the big stuff. Just go to church, keep your grades up, or don't go to church. But do keep your grades up either way, I think. Yeah, it's probably fine if you skip a few of them anyway, I'll be honest. if I mean, if your grades are kind of like middling, I think it's fine. My grades are slipping, and I did get a PhD, so it's fine. That's true. I'm still very bad at most things uh, academically, but I did get a PhD too. Um, yeah. So there we go. I mean, don't even don't even bother keeping your grades up. It's fine. You'll probably turn out okay. In life. <laughs> um, all right, Matt. I've got one last goof goof them up over here. Oh and gosh, okay. It is a simple question, um, but maybe not. Uh, really, I'm going to see if you can find the the hidden answer. I guess the question is: Is it a sin to break someone's legs? And this is a hmm. genuine question. Is there any body, or is that just all of it? That's it. Yeah. It's probably a sin to do that, I would say. Are there any situations in which it would not be a sin? Like, what if you had to... Okay, what if your choice was to save somebody uh, who was trapped in a burning house and you had to break their legs to get them out of the house? That'd probably be okay. That's not a sin. Yeah, so if it's like a 48 hours or whatever that movie was situation. <laughs> the one <laughs> the one where the guy saws his arm off? Yeah, that one. Okay, sure. Yeah, I think that makes sense. But imagine right? it wasn't his sin. arm. Imagine it was his legs. I'm imagining it, and I would love to see that movie. But yeah, I think that you're right. It's probably not sin then. Uh, think about this: if uh, if you were no, I think the burning building is kind of kind of the bottom of that barrel. You know, like that's when it's okay is if the building is burning. Right. Okay. And and every, and most other times, probably not. So only if the building is burning down, and maybe if you're James Franco and your legs are between a boulder. I mean, okay, the building doesn't have to be burning down. Like, if there could be an earthquake and it could collapse on you. There could be a tornado and collapse on you. The point is that you're trying to save someone from a building, but you do have to break their legs to get them free. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. And then that then it's okay. All right. So the hierarchy of uh, leg breaking here goes um, on the one hand, on the one side of the spectrum, not sinful at all. Is what you're telling me. And mm-hmm. that is um, someone's in trouble, for example, in a burning building. And on the other side of the spectrum is basically every other situation. And in that case, it is a sin. Yeah, that's it. All right. Easy. Easy and done. I love I love applied ethics. This is great. This is good stuff that we're doing. It's great. (laughs) It's good stuff that we're doing for sure. Extremely helpful. Okay, but if the person who you save from the building by breaking their legs ends up being Hitler, an evil, an evil dictator, that's what I'm saying, Mm -hmm. then it's a sin again. Right. <laughs> oh, no. That's right. That's right. And, you know, the thing about it is that, like, you've, you've saved them, and now you're going to have to sort of live eternity um, having, like, time travelers coming back. Stop right. you from saving the person. Right. You know, it's just going to be a huge problem for you. But what if you didn't save them because you were like, what if this person becomes a dictator? And it turns out that person actually would have become, like, Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah. Well, that's why you always have to save somebody until a time traveler shows up. Mm. Then it's okay not to. Right. So if someone does come back in time, you just have to believe them, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid you do. Huh. It's hard news for the person trapped in the building, but if you t- <laughs> if someone says they travel back in time, they'll understand. That's we'll get true. it. There's bigger fish to fry at that <laughs> stage, I guess. Yeah, for sure. All right, folks, we've done some goofs here. We've had a great time, but let's talk about current events because there's so many events that are happening in the world today, and some of them 
are current and they're happening right now. <laughs> Listeners of the pod will know that we've been talking a lot about uh, Cuba and the blockade uh, and giving up for Lent. And uh, I really hope that everyone's writing their letters to Joe Biden or I mean, you don't have to, I guess, but it'd be cool if you did. <laughs> and I think some people have at least some people have been uh, sending us their pictures. We'd love to see it. But we have some uh, Cuba news of a different variety today um, that's extremely current. And uh, that is an article from the Washington Post called Havana Syndrome, Not Caused by Energy Weapon or Foreign Adversary, <laughs> Intelligence Review Finds. Imagine that. I know. I love this title. Any title that has the words that has energy weapon in it, I'm going to be <laughs> excited about. Um, this article came out a few days ago by Shane Harris and John Hudson, two reporters. I don't I don't you know, basically nothing about anyways. Um, they wrote this article that's kind of following up about this saga that's been going on since I guess 2016, at least um, around a what is conclusively now made up disease or made up illness uh, that people uh, U.S. intelligence operatives were uh, getting when they were in Cuba. OK, let me tell you about this article, Dean. Tell me about it. Um, so after after like a year's this is the this is the tagline of the article. After a year's long assessment, five U.S. intelligence agencies conclude it is, quote, very unlikely an enemy wielding a secret weapon was behind the mysterious. <laughs> Fantastic. OK, so um, you might not know what Havana syndrome is, and that's OK. Don't worry, because I'm here to tell you about it. So this is what Havana syndrome is. This is from another uh, another Washington Post article uh, from a few years ago uh, called What is Havana Syndrome? So pretty aptly titled. The mysterious ailment known as Havana Syndrome began afflicting U.S. diplomats and intelligence officers in Cuba's capital, Havana, late in 2016. Victims reported the sudden onset of symptoms, including headaches, nausea, acute discomfort, and painful acoustic sensations, along with memory loss and other cognitive difficulties. More than six years later, as many as 200 occurrences have been reported among U.S. personnel in a list of countries that includes Russia, China, Colombia, Uzbekistan, and the United States. So that's what Havana Syndrome is. Is there another part of the story that I'm missing out? Does that sound like the Havana Syndrome story that you've known and loved over the last few years? Yeah, those are the basics. I think um, in addition to, we should say, so the U.S., you know, the Trump administration was saying this and... Um, it was used as an excuse to tighten restrictions on Cuba uh, explicitly. So that was a big political piece of it. Um, also, the Cuban government was basically like, OK, we're not doing this. And also, you can just like come here and look at whatever you want. And I promise you, you will not find a secret energy weapon. <laughs> and uh, guess what? People didn't want to cooperate with them. Um, and Cuba the whole time has denied any kind of I don't know, attack on U.S. diplomats. Um, this was also used as an excuse to take diplomats out of Cuba, uh, which further kind of ices out the relationship between the two countries. So all that to say, like, there's a lot of intentional political maneuvering around the story. Yeah, good. Uh, good context for sure. Um, so you might be wondering at home, what is it that causes Havana syndrome and how can you be sure to avoid it? <laughs> so this is, uh, again, from the Washington Post article. Theories about the cause of the symptoms have fueled arguments, sometimes given traction by experts, that the illness was caused by targeted attacks by a foreign adversary. 
Last year, a panel of experts convened by U.S. intelligence agencies suggested that an external energy source could be to blame. So the idea is that there's some kind of uh, yeah, like energy weapon, whatever that might mean, a death ray. I think people uh, have suggested you... uh, the big story was that it was like a sonic attack, that there was some yeah. <laughs> some big boombox out there making everybody sick. Right. It gives you a headache. It makes your tummy hurt and uh, it makes you forget things. Honestly, I don't know. To me, this seems like just on the face. So it seems like a Friday night. Like, it seems like a Friday night. I mean, I could. It also just sounds like a lot of people who are like suffering from extreme stress and like mm-hmm. <laughs> dealing with panic attacks. I don't know, man. That sounds like a panic attack to me. Having a headache, uh, discomfort, your stomach hurts. Uh, I don't know. I'm not a doctor. Well, I am, but not that kind. And uh, to me, that's exactly what it sounds like. Um, anyways, uh, so uh, the United States thought there was a, uh, yeah, some kind of energy weapon out there, a, a sonic a sonic boombox that would make you, uh, I don't know, very sick. Here's the thing that this article is, is uh, telling us. It's not real. Well, okay. The article qualifies this quite a bit. Um, it wants to hedge its bets, suggesting that, like, maybe someone's behind it. But, like, there's nothing really pointing to there being an energy weapon out in the world that can make you sick. So the article goes on to say this seven intelligence agencies participated in the review of approximately 1000 cases of anomalous health incidents. The term the government uses to describe a constellation of physical symptoms, including ringing in the ears, followed by pressure in the head and nausea, headaches, etc. Like I just said, five of those agencies, however, determined it was, quote, very unlikely that a foreign adversary was responsible for these symptoms, either as a result or of purposeful actions, such as a directed energy weapon, or the byproduct of some other activity, including electronic surveillance that unintentionally could have made people sick, the official said. So there you have it, folks. Um, five out of seven U.S. intelligence agencies agree that it is very unlikely that uh, Cuba or any other foreign adversary has a uh, a weapon that's giving people Havana syndrome. And I think that's something to say. That's something interesting to say about that, um, that uh, they've built this narrative for like a long time in the United States. I mean, since 2016, that Havana syndrome is a real thing and that some kind of like uh, some kind of government out there is doing it to people, you know, is doing it to U.S. diplomats, uh, U.S. intelligence officers and so on. And now they're all walking it back. And that is really fascinating. I don't know. Like, I don't really know exactly why or like what's in it for them to do so, but they are. Yeah, I mean, it is wild. Um, I was surprised to see it. It is pretty strange to think about, like, what, like you said, what's the advantage um, of doing it? Or, you know, it strikes me that there's so much kind of, I don't know, like there, it seems like there's a lot of sunk cost stuff going on, you know, like at a certain yeah. point. The U.S. government, you think even if they knew that it was not that way, they would just not tell the rest of us. But uh, anyway, they did, I guess. Um, it's also really interesting to me that, like, this has been a contested narrative since it started. That, like, right away, there was sort of an official story about Havana Syndrome that, you know, it was the bad guys out there, the Bond villains, um, <laughs> Ra- Raul Castro and his big spooky speakers. Um, but, uh, there was a lot of, uh, people dissenting from that, like pretty much in the beginning. And it's been, you know, back and forth, back and forth. I did see that the Pentagon, I guess, is still like not ruling out the possibility that there's some secret energy weapon out there or whatever. But yeah, surprising to find this admission. Yeah, that's right. It is only five out of seven. Um, intelligence agencies that are uh, in agreement about that. 
Something else interesting about this article, too, is that the Washington Post doesn't really go out of its way to tell you which of the intelligence agencies or which agencies from the U.S. government are um, having changes of heart about this. It's all kind of tight-lipped for whatever reason, so interesting. Yeah, one other thing. uh, So five out of seven determined it was very unlikely, but the other two out of the seven did say that it was unlikely. So not very unlikely, but unlikely. So nobody out of the seven is like, yeah, it's probably an energy weapon or whatever. Right. Good context. Yes. The other part of the story that I think is definitely not mentioned in that article and like uh, kind of being downplayed, I think. In past years, the State Department has actually given quite a bit of money to the U.S. diplomats and the, you know, their families whose lives have been impacted by the, you know, quote unquote Havana syndrome. And I think that's actually kind of significant like Mm -hmm. uh congress voted to give them money in an article from cnn uh in 2022 uh they kind of go into more detail i guess about um (laughs) the money aspect of it all so this is uh this is from cnn u.s state department has announced that u.s diplomats and family members impacted by severe havana syndrome symptoms who required at least a year of medical assistance are going to be eligible for compensation payments of about one hundred and forty thousand dollars or one hundred and eighty seven thousand dollars uh, the payments will be paid in a one-time lump sum tax-free amount, uh, the Department of the U.S. Department of State said. Um, so there you go. I mean, I guess it's interesting. Not that people don't deserve that. I mean, if you're if um, if my uh, hypothesis is correct and they're like dealing with anxiety and stress and like panic attacks, then I don't know. Fine, man. The government should probably help you with that, I suppose, especially if you're like forced into a weird and hard situation being a U.S. diplomat. Um, sure. Whatever. It's such a frustrating thing to see the government like pay out so much money to like a weird lie that they themselves made up and just like sort of <laughs> buy into it in this like weird circular way. Anyways, I hope they all feel better and that money helps them <laughs> in some way. But at the same time, like it's very bizarre. Yeah, it was also a lot of money, like tens of millions of dollars um, dedicated for sure to for it. like for like a thousand people or, you know, however many people yeah, it actually was. Yeah, right? it's not like a, a not a widespread uh, part of the population. Right. And worth pointing out too that like. You know, I agree, whatever. If people are extremely stressed out in their jobs and their state employees, they should be whatever, paid or taken care of and so on. But, you know, you got to imagine like like it's a Havana syndrome thing. Like they're not uh, they're not giving that money to anybody who's just having like stress symptoms. It's like <laughs> yeah, totally. the people yeah. who are willing to like, I don't know, be sort of drawn into or pulled into this kind of story about Havana syndrome. Those are the folks who are going to be politically sort of mobilized and rewarded in, in this way, too. Um, not to say that they're all like in on it or, or pushing the narrative or whatever. I don't know a single person who's receiving the money. But like just to say that it's the it's the politics that matter, I guess, at the end of the day. Yeah, I agree. I'm just trying to be compassionate. Dean. Yeah. That's all I'm trying. To, that's all I'm doing here. And I appreciate that. Uh, I think that's great. Um, but I'm going to switch gears into a less compassionate story <laughs> <laughs> again. All right. Um, Good. I'm ready to be mad at somebody. Right. So we're talking about how bad the U.S. government is. Um, so usually in the walk-in, Matt and I both bring a current event. And uh, this one is maybe appropriately regionally distributed. Um because we're yelling at the U.S. government. Now we're, we're going to talk about the Canadian government, how it is also doing some bad things. Uh, right now, my whole life is oriented around this thing called the PDAC conference, the Prospectors and Developers Association of Canada. They do it in Toronto every year, and it's a bunch of mining companies and professionals and industry people who get together for a few days and pat each other on the back. They do a big conference. They do awards. They have students meet 
mentors in this industry of violence and death. And uh, it's a really wild time. So, you know, it's important to go there and say that, that it's not good. They shouldn't do it. Um, so there's a bunch of uh, articles coming out like there are usually around the PDAC uh, related to mining, which is great also. And uh, there's a really good one by this woman, Kirsten Francescone at the Canadian Dimension, which is like a pretty standard Canadian progressive publication. And the title is Stank's State. Whoa, stank. No, thank you. State sanctioned violence in Peru and the role of Canadian mining. And the whole article is worth reading. Uh, basically, like people have probably heard in uh, December, um, the president, Pedro Castillo of Peru, was deposed in this really complicated uh, set of circumstances. And there's a right wing government that is very bad um, right now, uh, a coup government. And they have been really severely violently repressing all kinds of people who are protesting the removal of Pedro Castillo. And uh, in all of that context, this article explains, um, there's also been some Canadian politicking going on. And here is how it starts. On January 18, 2023, as thousands of Peruvians were taking to the streets in Lima to denounce the spiraling political crisis in the country, Canadian Ambassador Louis Marcotte was meeting with the Peruvian Minister of Energy and Mines. Protests have been going on since December. Demonstrators have been met with widespread arrests and brutal violence. Uh, and the point the article makes is this ambassador is really more concerned with how to position Canadian interests in this big moment, this flare-up of social energy and right-wing terror and so on, uh, rather than denouncing human rights violations and you know really trying to hold the government accountable a thing that they rush to do in the context of many other uh, progressive governments that are maybe not as friendly to Canadian interests uh, in the region. So it's a great article. Um, there's lots more to say about it, but uh, that's the beginning anyway, Matt. Um, I can't stop thinking about how the Canadian government is uh, often sort of like viewed as the, the not so bad one in this part of the world. You know, the U.S. is like the dirty laundry. It's the one you can always expect to be doing some bad stuff. But Canada kind of gets away with being like a placid, polite country. And meanwhile, it like the majority of the world's mining companies are headquartered here in Canada. And uh, this country is like constantly going to bat for those very bad interests uh, all over the world. And I think people just need to have like a better perspective that Canada is, uh, you know, <laughs> home to that kind of violent industry. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Canada is just a handful of mining companies in Trenchco. <laughs> Justin Trudeau's riding on their shoulders and uh, he's got his head sticking out, I guess. But yeah, I mean, it is true, right? Uh, I think the the U.S. conception of Canada is definitely that, right? There are these just polite folks up there who are living their lives in the cold tundra of Ontario. <laughs> <laughs> uh, eating Tim, Tim Hortons. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's great to point out, though. I guess the ways that uh, this very friendly country that we um I'll think about that way at least is pretty complicit in, um, you know, social ills and, uh, and all kinds of awful economic violence, just the way the United States is. Yeah. It's interesting. Like I said, the PDAC comes to Toronto every year. They do this big mining thing and there is a ton of really amazing mining activists, especially organized with this thing called the mining and justice solidarity network. 
Um, they're really amazing folks. Um, and I've just been getting to know them, learning a lot from them. And it's really cool. Like there's, you know, because the PDAC always comes to Toronto, there's also kind of a, a bit of maybe like a center of gravity for certain resistance efforts to the mining industry in the city. That is pretty neat. Um, and so there's always these kinds of disruptions around the PDAC. And what I think is also really interesting is like, you know, the mining industry, I think, is also something people probably think is basically innocuous or or just don't think about at all, I guess, is probably more likely. I mean, who among us <laughs> ever thinks about the mining industry? But it is the industry that is, I don't know, in the definitely the, the top offenders for human rights and environmental abuses, like their security forces murder people in Guatemala. They are like opening completely irreversible holes to, you know, the bowels of the earth in the middle of the Amazon, like just an extremely disgusting industry. And like industry professionals know it like it's not a secret. Every year they're confronted with activists at their own industry conference who are like trying to explain that to them. And they just go to the next conference room and whatever, drink bottled water and <laughs> listen to somebody talk about it, uh, talk about how great the industry is. And I think like the way I've been thinking about it lately is there's a level of cynicism in the mining industry that is second only to like the arms industry, you know, like everybody knows that the harm is happening, but everyone's just kind of like in it for the money or the career or whatever that they can get out of it. And man, it is like a real spiritual crisis. I feel <laughs> it's like a place of a lot of uh, demonic energy over there at the P deck. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I, I don't know. You've been to the PDAC before, I guess, right? So, and and you've been part of the people who've not really disrupt. I mean, disrupted is maybe a strong word. You've been part of the protest there, though, mm-hmm. right? Like, do do the... <laughs> okay, I'm I'm imagining the type of guys who, uh, who go to this conference specifically, and they all have cowboy hats on, <laughs> and they all have, like, uh, like, Western shirts on for some reason. But do, do they ever, like, engage with the, uh, the ideas from the people who are disrupting or protesting? Or, like, do, I don't know. Do, does it bother them at all? Like, ever? <laughs> it seems like it should. <laughs> That's a good question. I don't have a ton of experience going. I've been to one protest last summer, and I've followed the protests before that. Um, in my experience, extremely limited of last summer, uh, there's definitely a range of responses. Like we blocked off a street that was in front of the PDAC convention center and, you know, like we're annoying to traffic and so on. Um, but like the people who pass by, you get some people who make snide remarks. Like, did you know that, I don't know, people need mining for the phones that you're taking video on or whatever, or you get people who will come by and take a video of the protest and kind of chuckle to themselves But you also get some like people I would describe as probably I don't know how to put it like they're the true believers, you know, like they do believe that there's an ethical future for the mining industry and they are probably in a certain sense like interested from a place in their heart that is genuine (laughs) in the story, but not interested in a like, you know, in a way that is sort of meaningful enough to necessarily make them like question the very foundations that make their life possible or make their sort of career possible. So there's a range. And I think too, like, I don't know, at the end of the day, like I feel like it's important to understand complex ways in which people live their lives. Like somebody's an engineering student. They know a lot about whatever mining technology. They never really think about the human rights issues involved because like, who's going to tell them that in school And then they find themselves in the mining industry the way people find themselves in all kinds of industries. And, you know, 
maybe this is like the first they're hearing of it and they're interested. Like, I think that that does happen. But yeah, it's like a pretty bizarre thing to sort of watch uh, all these lanyard people just wander by being like, oh, what a weird thing that people are doing in the street. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, a point that we make on the podcast quite a bit is that it doesn't being a boss or being a capitalist doesn't mean that you're like a bad person. Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't mean that you're like an, an angry, <laughs> mean dad that yells at everybody or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but it does mean that you like fill a particular social function that does create the conditions for exploitation. Mm-hmm. And that's bad. But like you might be very nice at the same time, which is a very funny con- contradiction. But I guess it's a great example of uh, how that works out. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I do want to mention about this article that I think is great, though. Uh, so last year when we went to the PDAC, um, I went with uh, the organization I work for, uh, Development and Peace, who we have like lots of partner organizations in the global south. And so we thought we should really bring the voice of one of those organizations to the PDAC because that's, you know, our job is to try to amplify the voice of those folks. And so this really interesting group called the Peruvian Episcopal Commission for Social Action, they wrote an open letter to the PDAC. And uh, it was great. I'm really glad that they did it. Um, Really cool to be able to make that contribution. And it's neat because it actually shows up in this article. And uh, the author says this. During the 2022 PDAC conference, um, the Commission for Social Action wrote an open letter to the conference delegates expressing that Contrary to the promises made by Ambassador Marcote and others, mining has, quote, not brought the promised improvements in quality of life for most communities in the mining areas. On the contrary, it has resulted in corruption and environmental contamination and has infringed on people's rights to life and health, leaving behind social conflict, disease, and even death. And the article goes on to fill in some of the specifics around it. But I thought it was actually pretty amazing. Like, I opened this uh, article just to read because it's like a thing to read around the PDAC. Um, and to discover that in there was really neat. And it really felt like this is a unique contribution that the ecumenical movement has made to the struggle against mining, right? To try to sort of lift up the voice of uh, of the church and the poor in the global south here in Canada. So I was very excited to see that and also very surprised and just a neat thing to sort of think through to, like, I don't know, as Christian people on the left thinking about organizing issues like mining, those kind of particular industries, it really matters that we like find a voice there because I feel like also people are looking for it and and listening to it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, I know that you're you're there as the representative of a religious community of people kind of trying to figure that out. I mean, there are others that are doing that specifically in Canada, too, right? Like around mining. Yeah, yeah. Um, there are a handful of, uh, other Christian groups too, that are invested in mining or <laughs> I shouldn't say that. I mean, that's true, <laughs> but interested in the mining industry in a critical way. Uh, the United church has a, a whole sort of group, um, working on it, for example, which that's like the biggest, uh, Protestant denomination in Canada. Um, lots of other ecumenical groups like Kairos and, uh, the student Christian movement. We've been working with them around it. So that's very neat, but beyond us, like, There are in Canada, because it is such a mining oriented economy, there are some really incredible organizations. If you want to learn more, there's a great website called Mining Watch, um, and it's more than a website. They do all kinds of research and they support uh, communities going through legal struggles with mines. It's a really amazing organization. Um, You can check them out for sure. But yeah, lots of movement in Canada around mining in particular. Great. Just as they should be. That makes a lot of sense. Um, well, cool. It's always good to hear that there are like um, 
people of faith who are out there doing it and kind of interrogating the uh, the imperialism of everyday life uh, or whatever we want to call it. I think it's uh, pretty uplifting to know about that. Yeah. By the time this airs, this will have already happened. But uh, on well, this week. We're going to go to the PDAC, a handful of Christians, and um, we're going to do a prayerful vigil for the victims of mining while the PDAC itself is doing like an awards gala. So the juxtaposition is to say while they're kind of celebrating their achievements, we want to um, celebrate and remember the people who have been on the wrong side of mining. And, you know, I think it's like an interesting thing. On the one hand, it's a bit of a spectacle. It's like, you know, it's not like shutting down a street or something, but I do feel like there's so much power in religious symbols and it's one thing to bring to the PDAC. I imagine if you're just like an industry person and you're wandering by and maybe you see like a priest in a collar with like a sign that says hands off Africa or something. My hope is that it would like at least make you like do a double take. <laughs> That's probably like yeah. all we can ask for. But yeah, you know, it, it's cool to to know that there are people of faith actually willing to like show up in the middle of winter to say something about mining. All right, folks. Well, in this episode, you got a little bit of a peek behind the iron paywall of what we do on our uh, Patreon only podcast, The Lock In. Um, if you did, t- if you did tune into the Lock In podcast, what you'd find is maybe some more mythos about our fictional youth group that we do have. Uh, we kind of, I think we left that out, and probably for good reason, because um, <laughs> it is probably really weird <laughs> if you think about it. Uh, but we do have a, uh, a a rich and deep lore on that podcast uh, about all of our uh, about our youth group, just in general, I guess. Anyways, you can uh, get that great podcast that is behind the iron paywall for. I think just like $2 a month or something like that. That's that's the level you support the podcast app. And uh, you can do it or you can not. It's really up to you. But I think you should. It's it's good. You could do it. You could do it. Where where could they do it, Matt? Oh, yeah, that's right. At patreon.com slash the Magnificast. I was just thinking early in the episode, we were, you know, we were kind of like walking away. Or we were walking things back. You know, do you have to go to church? Uh, I don't know. Do you have to keep your grades up? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. But you should support our podcast. That would be really good yeah, yeah. of you. But but if you don't, listen, you have to do one of the three, right? You either mm-hmm. have to go to church, you have to keep your grades up, or you have to support the podcast. Um, so, you know, if you if you decide not to do the other two, then just do this one. That's all I'm trying to say. I agree. I agree. This is basically a substitute for both grades and church. I feel like we just reinvented indulgences. Is that <laughs> what we just did? No, we reinvented emergent church, coffee church. <laughs> okay. Um, maybe even more damning if you ask me <laughs> but anyways uh, thanks for joining us this week on the Magnificast if you like what you heard you can support us on Patreon if you don't like what you heard then keep it to yourself and don't tell anybody hide under a bushel yes um, our intro music is by Amari Armstrong our outro music is by The Illogical Spoon and we'll see you next week for probably more substantial content but you never know who can say Get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you 
stay up late Oh, don't mind a cold night But we might mind if you leave too soon So come on now, it's still early At least I would have